Um, it is an absolute pleasure, a delight to be back here uh, for a number of reasons. I want to thank uh, Stephen, uh, Camden Organization, and all of you for uh, taking up some time and uh, letting me share some comments. I was asked to cover two or three things. One, of course, is our innovation journey at PepsiCo. And the second is uh, a little peek under the tent into where we think much of this industry's uh, evolution uh, from our perspective is, uh, is going and how uh, a lot of the forces that are shaping our industry are evolving. But before I do that, most people think of PepsiCo, of course, as Pepsi-Cola, a wonderful brand. But if I told you that the cola business makes up maybe a fifth of our business, uh, as Pepsi-Cola, the brand itself. It will tell you how big and diversified our company is. But So let me share with you a little bit about Pepsi uh, by the numbers, so to speak. We're about a $70 billion annual revenue company. Uh, we're the largest American food and beverage company, one of the largest in the world. By any definition, the most diverse by far. We have $22 billion brands in the world. give you some idea, we were a pharma company. We'd have 22 blockbusters. And so to be the head of R&D and the head of innovation for the global corporation, it's quite a daunting task as I look across the enterprise. Where do you actually prioritize? Where do you uh, pick your battles? And where do you grow? And where do you invest? Which is part of my mandate um, under the leadership of our chairman, Indra Nui, to whom I report. A couple of other numbers, and probably the one that keeps me up the most at night, is that 1.3 billion humans consume a Pepsi product every day. That's one in five of the entire planet. That gives you an idea of our size, our reach, our distribution, our manufacturing capacity. But at the end of the day, when you're a $70 billion business and you're expected to grow between 5 to 10%, we have to generate about a 6 to $7 billion new business every year, of which the majority has to come from innovation. And that is the mandate of my organization. How do you innovate when you already are of this size and scale across the world, and I'll touch on that. But to do that, let me share with you our R&D journey and a little bit of the history of the company. We don't have the sort of history of the wonderful companies and the, and the institutions that I grew up with here in England. Pepsi is about 100 years old. Pepsi Co. will be celebrating its 50-year anniversary next year. And I've been learning with the 100-year history of Camden and, and, and their wonderful work in food integrity, of course, touched on Warburton's, um, we are one of the oldest brands in, in the U.S. And historically, PepsiCo, like many American brands and many Western brands, grew purely by distribution scale and opening up new markets. And that model of opening up new markets had a very clear working formula. You took your great brand, you added it to a grow-to-market system, you opened up new markets, you took that brand into that new market, and you scaled up. And that allowed you to continue to grow. And for us, we grew to be today doing business in 200 countries. I literally have regulatory or nutrition or R&D or some people that ultimately report up to my organization in almost 200 countries. I'm glad I don't have to hold meetings in every one of them. I'm certainly on the road, but that would be crazy. That all worked up until about 2000. Up until about 15 years ago, this was going just fine. About 15 years ago, the world started to change from our perspective, and it changed in some very dramatic ways. First of all, traditional media channels became very crowded. The cost of advertising and marketing through traditional media became relatively uh, expensive, and 
the competition for the attention of time drove such that the ROI started to really look different. The internet came on, social media started to change everything, and the way we think about engaging with our consumer was going to go through a rapid change. Consumers for decades, if not centuries, really cared about a couple of things. Is the food safe and clean? Does it taste great? And is it going to be consistent wherever I buy it? That's what they... They didn't read labels. What was behind the labels was hidden. Most of the time, knowledge of the supply chain, the ingredients, constituents, all of that was known in the industry but not by the consumer because most consumers didn't care. And then, as the power of knowledge, which was in the hands of a few, changed, and knowledge was no longer power and is accessible to everybody anywhere, developed or developing market, on the positive side, people started to connect with each other, started asking questions, and information started to become available over that decade. There is a challenge, however, which we face every day. The accuracy of that data, the integrity of that information, and the appropriate balance and interpretation, which was an editorial function, suddenly disappeared with social media and free media availability. So there is no longer the ability to actually judge. And so facts sometimes are questionable. Certainly information has been ahead of the curve of any sense of understanding and professional expertise to judge it. But that's a topic for a different day, something that any of us that are in this business deal with. Consumers clearly were going to have more and more power and more and more say in what they consume, where it comes from, how it's made. 2007, Indra Nui, our CEO and chairman, took over, and within months of that, started a search to hide the first global head of R&D of PepsiCo. And what was very different and unique in the industry then and today is she and the board chose to go outside the food and beverage industry. I had never worked in the food and beverage industry myself, and I found myself heading up R&D for one of the world's biggest, most iconic food and beverage companies, and I can tell you the media certainly noticed. What's an endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic, a professor of medicine, previous president of R&D for a pharmaceutical company going to come into a, a food and beverage company like PepsiCo, and what are we going to do? And the sort of questions that I got you can imagine. From my professors, my faculty, my father at one, called me up from Manchester, England, and I thought you were a doctor. And I said, well, I still am, Dad. I can still write a prescription. It's just never to you. And as... I started taking over the helm of this great company, there was some challenges. First of all, all of our R&D was fragmented across different business units that had been acquired or built, but nobody reported to me. In fact, the day I arrived at PepsiCo, I had one direct report, which was my administrative assistant. And other than a travel budget, I had not, non, no control over the budget. So budget was fragmented, the people were distributed, no reporting relationships, and the mandate I got from the board is knit it all together, change the organization, change the innovation process. We need to grow top line, we need to grow bottom line, otherwise we do not see sustainable growth without this, and we will invest. Well, I can tell you, I can talk about a lot of different things that we did over the years, but probably the most important decision to be made at that time was the talent. We knew we had great talent into the organization, but everybody who reported to me 
or theoretically reported to me because they were actually not my direct reports and for a few weeks until I changed that, were male, Caucasian, white. Every one of them had only worked in the United States. There'd been veterans of PepsiCo for decades. And in essence, we had one person who was more junior in the ranks that was based in Europe, and that was the executive team of one of the world's most iconic food and beverage companies. A global company, a global R&D and innovation, but a very homogenous, uniform executive team to lead that. And we were about to change that. Fast forward next six to seven years, I have on my executive team now three Europeans who report directly to me. One's based actually right here in the United Kingdom. One based in the Middle East, covering Middle East and Asia. One in the U.S. Of my executive team, three are women. We have the senior VP or higher African-Americans now, Chinese, Asians. I can go on and on. But half the team is women. Half the team are international. Half the team are diverse. And it started to change. But most importantly, that's the diversity you see. Of the team that was recruited by myself, three of them had never worked in the food and beverage industry. They came from completely different industries. One came from pharmaceuticals. One came from beauty care. One came from supply chain of the U.S. military. And prior to that, the restaurant industry. And we set about shaping what we thought was going to be a very different future. Why do I say brought it from different industries? Because in my experience, if you're going to innovate, if you're going to grow, most progress happens not within a discipline, but at the borders and crossover between disciplines. And this was an amazing opportunity to bring the culture and innovation of heavy engineering, life sciences, biotechnology, our traditional food and beverage engineering, and bring them together. A challenge as a leader, but a huge opportunity to change not only PepsiCo, but what we believe will start to move the industry. Because when you are one of the biggest, if not the biggest player in the industry, you move your needle, the industry will, by definition, move. Since uh, given our scale and our reach, we start to redefine things. So since 2011, as I said, we increased the R&D budget by more than 25% each year. We started to look at it as a more and more global investment. The R&D organization became one global organization reporting to one executive leader, one budget, one team, one global look. And we started to now throw out different strategic bets. Instead of investing in products, we started investing in platforms. And that was a very important shift. We used to talk about project and product innovation. We started to talk about platform innovation. Platforms that could be leveraged in multiple countries, platforms that could be scaled, and at the end of the day, go across our portfolio. Some were near-term, which are now delivering in the market. Some are long-term, some of which now the technology breakthroughs have happened, and they're going to be appearing in products in the next 24, 36 months. So what do the numbers show? If, if you're the CFO of the company, of course, you ask the question, okay, so what do I get for all of this? Let me give you a couple of proof points. If you measure net revenue growth as a percent of your base coming from R&D products, that is products that were launched in the last 36 months, 
brand new products to market. Our run rate used to be in the mid-single digits. We increased that initially up to about 8% of our net revenue coming from R&D-based products. In 2013 versus 2012, we increased that another percentage point to 9%. To give you an idea, on a $70 billion base, that's another $700 million in revenue, just that one percentage. So every time we talk about a 1% increase in revenue from R&D, we're talking about top-line growth of $700 million. So we've bumped it up already by more than a billion dollars on the top line. On the bottom line, in addition to that, and by the way, most of these products have either the runway or already are margin accretive. So from a margin point of view, they're better, our pricing better, our cost structure's better. And in addition to that, we've been dropping around a quarter of a billion dollars a year in operational efficiencies by cost savings in the materials, energy, water, or cost of distribution, the way we've designed the products right from scratch as opposed to after the fact. So that was to the bottom line. If we think about how we're doing to our competition, probably the one statistic that makes me the most proud is in the United States, our biggest market. If you look at the top 50 food and beverage launches of the entire industry last year in 2013, of the top 50, nine came out of my labs. Nine of the you, when one fifth of the industry's innovation is coming out of your labs, you know you're firing on all four cylinders. So we're growing top line, we're adding to the margin, and we're winning against the competition. And it isn't in just in food or just in beverages. Of those nine products, four came out of beverages and five came out of foods. Completely balanced across the portfolio. And there are some of these are amazing products in how they're redefining their categories. So if I pick one of them, for example, everybody's seen the growth of the energy category. We decided not to build on that portfolio. But we picked up that there was a need in the morning for people who don't drink coffee, don't want an energy drink, and given all of the conversations and baggage there, we launched in the United States Mountain Dew Kickstart. Caffeine level of a CSD based on 5% juice, great marketing behind it, great pricing, significantly margin accretive to our juice business and our CSD business. And the, in the first few months, it hit $100 million in sales. First few months. It is already on track to be a $200 million business, and we've not yet left the U.S. On the food side, a brand that you all know well in this country is Muller. We took Muller through a joint venture that I had the privilege of leading as the CEO of the Global Nutrition Group, created a business from scratch as a 50-50 JV, launched the Muller Quaker portfolio, and that business is a $100 million business in its first year. Similarly, we created the first major national Humus brand in the U.S. in partnership with Strauss, the Sabra business. In 36 months from launch, it has become the country's number one hummus brand. The power of our product development, go-to-market distribution with great innovation, and you can keep winning in great margin-accretive businesses, which are very different to our traditional. Of course, my friend and colleague in the audience, Neil Campbell, and I worked together on Tropicana, Trop 50, and you'll be delighted to hear Trop 50 Farm Stand, which you and I co-led the creation of, was one of those nine top 50 products in the country. So it was another reason for being here is, of course 
having my marketing colleague right here, it's always been a battle is who's going to drive what innovation, but it was a wonderful partnership, Neil. The third axis I wanted to touch on is we said, okay, we'll grow our food and beverage innovation. We'll grow them as power of one. We'll look at top line. We'll look at bottom line. But the other part of the business we tended to not focus on as much in the past was our food service business. But food service for us, we used to use the word partner very loosely. Partner for meant we would go to a restaurant or a food service customer and provide them our beverages. And most of the negotiations, since there's little differentiation, most of our beverages was on negotiation on price, distribution, cost. And that has hurt the industry. Partner to me is shared values, shared returns, not a vendor relationship. That's very different. Vendor relationships are important. Partnership implies shared risk, shared gain. So we did a little different this time. A member of my team, Stephen Khalil, started with a culinary arts center, which we had built about six years ago. If you ever get a chance, do visit. We now have a global culinary arts team. A number of these chefs are both PhDs in science as well as master chefs in their training. A really right brain, left brain combo type of people. And Stephen Khalil's team came up and said, look, we have a great brand in Doritos. But Doritos, other than a packaged product, doesn't extend itself further, but it could go into food service. So what do they do? They sit down with engineering and create a taco, a hard shell taco, which we branded in partnership with Taco Bell as Doritos. The engineering of this was quite a challenge. It took us a year to fix because to take a hard shell taco and put seasoning on the inside and outside evenly without it concentrating the crease and without it getting bitter because there's too much on one side or too little on the other was not an easy task, let alone make a billion tacos without them breaking. Well, the team was up for the challenge of Frito-Lay. And guess what? It was launched as Doritos Locos Tacos only two years ago. In 24 months, brand new launch of a product that's never been on the market. Last year, it just completed $1 billion in revenue. Never sold out of the U- outside the U.S. So we just created another billion-dollar new business, top-line food service from scratch based on an R&D idea, R&D technology, great partnership and go-to-market from Taco Bell and, of course, our food service team. But we aren't stopping there. We said, what can we do to shake up the beverage industry in food service? And food service and beverage, we had now said, okay, we're there showing our partners that we are more than a beverage company in our innovation. And for the last five years, I had the opportunity to lead the engineering, the beverage, and the commercialization team of a secret project internally that we used to call Shockwave. And that project, whose project manager, Rich Schutzenhofer, who wanted to retire once, we said, no, you can retire, but in five years when you've done this project. He came from our operations team, reported into me at R&D, and we said, we are going to create the world's most comprehensive portfolio of vending technology for beverages the world has never seen. Those of you who were there, we actually unveiled it at the National Restaurant Association in Chicago about three weeks ago. It is a portfolio of equipment starting from low thousands going up to $20,000 a piece of equipment, the first of a kind in terms of breadth. A typical machine can give you up to 1,000 different beverages from one machine. 
You can customize the drink to the individual. The interaction and engagement is through a 40-inch touchscreen. It has the ability to add a variety of shots. Every single machine is connectable to the Internet. We will know and know now every single beverage that is being poured by zip code, by restaurant. We know what the consumer is buying, how they're creating the product, which product. And if you think that technology is innovation, look what it's about to do to marketing and consumer research. Our history as an industry was we launched something based on consumer insights, put it in the supermarket, something that sold, we then put into food service. My friends, the world's about to change. Because now what R&D is doing is learning from that huge amount of data coming in from the marketplace by individual drinks. We're not talking about consumer insights. We're talking about knowing consumer behavior. And that's different. One is asking somebody and predicting what they might do versus actually knowing what they did and then taking their most favorite creations and then producing them and putting them on the supermarket shelf. We're completely about to turn around innovation as a process. So the difference between engineering, consumer insights, product development, creation, co-creation, brand engagement is completely changing as we build out the system. And these units are now in beta testing in the marketplace. If you're visiting the U.S., you can see them. We've put some early versions in Europe, but the best news in terms of our competitive advantage, is what I'm about to share with you. For about 50-some years, Disney has been an exclusive Coca-Cola account. Long-term relationship we never were able to crack. Disney's new flagship theme park in the world, not surprisingly, is going to be in Shanghai, China. Shanghai, China, Disney will be a Pepsi account. And it was won over by one important new variable, the innovation pipeline and the ability to create at PepsiCo had completely changed the game. And so you know when your organization is delivering for your company, when you can grow the top line, when you can grow the bottom line, when you can improve operational efficiency, when you can create new platforms. And the ultimate test comes when you can win over your competitors, customers, and swing them over to your business based on what you're doing. So all of this has redefined for us what we think about as R&D. Is it any more R&D? I don't think so. Because the traditional term of R&D and I've worked in three different industries now. Life sciences and healthcare as a physician, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology as a biotechnologist, and now the consumer industry. There are some commonalities. There are differences. I don't care what your background is. The opportunity to learn, think, and be willing to take risks in new directions is what moves the needle. Doing the same thing in a different way doesn't move much at all. You have to take risks. You have to be brave. And most importantly, you have to have leadership that sees the vision with you. But the critical sauce is the p- talent and the people and the diverse thinking that they bring. So let me finish off touching a little bit about what we think is we're just touching the first phase of a very exciting period for this industry. It's an industry we get criticized. Often, our critics have little understanding of the impact 
and the positive work we do for the world. There are a billion people who go hungry every night on this planet. The world's population today is about 7.5 billion. It will be about 9.5 billion by 2050, well within the lifetime of just about all of the students in this room and most people in this room. That incremental 2 billion people means we have to create about 40% more food on the planet than we do today. There's a billion hungry today. If we need a 40% increase in food production, we will get 2 to 2.5 billion hungry people on the planet if we don't do something different. And doing the same little twist here and there isn't going to change it because we only have about 30, 35 years to do it in. That's basically one generation. Land use is a challenge because we're not creating more land. We're not creating more water. In fact, our production per hectare on the planet, if anything, is plateaued, if not declining, for a whole variety of reasons. At a time when governments are pulling back in R&D investment from the food and beverage and agricultural industry, when all governments should be thinking about how to invest more. Because if you think about global security, it'll happen because we have global food security. We have global water security. And so the food and beverage industry has a critical, critical role in this sustainable part of human society, probably the most fundamental need of every human being, which is our ability to eat clean, safe food and drink clean, safe water. It's going to take great R&D. It's going to take great operations. It's going to take great leaders. And most of all, it's going to take great collaboration. That's something we at PepsiCo were not very good at in the past. When I took over, our focus was not only U.S.-centric, but it was internal to PepsiCo. We've completely changed that. As I said, we brought in new leaders from new industries. We now have molecular biologists, endocrinologists, cardiovascular specialists, engineers, hydrologists, computational biologists, big data analytics, all of that. If you come to one of our Pepsi labs, you will see molecular biology in ways that you'll not see in a life sciences university. All the way through to material scientists, engineers and from the energy industry. We built a solar-powered plant in Modesto, California. We have a plant in Arizona. The entire factory is solar-powered. All in the last six to seven years. But as we think about the real ideas, they're going to come from outside the company. In the last four years, we've signed 50 different contracts with universities, academic centers, research organizations. That's one a month. Every four weeks on average, we're signing a new contract with a new university or a new institution or a new government entity for research and development alone. It's keeping our lawyers very busy. We've added a very large IP team, but we've really opened ourselves up. And my last statement is many of my young students and I teach around different universities come up to me and say, well, so Mahmoud, what is the secret to keeping this going and, and this success? And my favorite line, which I truly believe, is I've made a career out of never having to come up with a good idea. In fact, I'm waiting for my first good idea. I've got about eight years left to retire, so I'm hoping it's imminent. However, I've made a career out of recognizing other people's good ideas. And all you have to do as a leader is you don't have to worry about coming up with an idea. Just keep your eyes open, your ears open, and most importantly, your mind open. When you hear a good idea, embrace it, take a risk on it, back it, and the odds are it'll pay off. Thank you very much.